I'm going to read the scripture for today. It's a little bit more complicated than usual since we have two passages instead of one. We'll be looking at Romans 12 and then also Ephesians 4. If you're using a pew Bible, the page that Romans 12 is on is on 1763. And if you want to also make a note for Ephesians 4, it's on 1821. Starting in Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are so in Christ, we who are many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now moving to Ephesians 4. Starting in verse 11, Paul's talking about Jesus. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each body, as each part, does its work. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Chris. Hey, everybody. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently of an economist talking about his book. Um, I mention a lot that I listen to podcasts by economists, and you might wonder why on earth you listen to so many economics podcasts. It's because they're the new high priests of our society, and I need to know what the other pastors are saying. That's the main thing. We all worship the economy, and so economists are the high priests, and so you've got to know what's going on. So, um, but anyway, he'd written a book recently, and one of his arguments was that— Um, He said Pursuing happiness Is not a sufficient Thing to talk about He meant in economics but he also meant in life He He said just do this thought experiment He said if happiness was the main Thing we were here to do He said then Why wouldn't we spend all of our resources And energy simply to come up with a Pharmaceutical that you could take that would Just make you happy well, somebody may need to inform him that that is a big part of the pharmaceutical industry is making pills that make us feel happy. But, but usually that's to cure unhappiness. Psycholo- you know, chemically induced unhappiness, so we create chemically induced not-so-unhappiness. But, there's, but there's no, there is no pill. It's like you just take this and you'll just be happy and then that's all you have to do. Everybody recognizes 
that that wouldn't be sufficient, that that's too shallow, that that's not enough. People disagree very widely on exactly what you need to pursue, but almost everybody would accept that being a drug addict, for example, even if the drug didn't destroy your physical body, still wouldn't be a meaningful life, right? Which I think might help us parent, actually. Like if, if parents are, I mean, if you've ever known a parent who's had a kid that's gotten on, been addicted to drugs, you know how, how tragic that is. How do we keep our kids from it? Is it just keeping them out of the right parties? Or do we need to communicate to them that the greatest thing in life isn't happiness? Because if it is, why wouldn't you take whatever risk necessary? You can tell them drugs is a huge risk, but if happiness is the greatest thing, why wouldn't you take any risk necessary to attain it? Right? There, there has to be a greater ambition. And generally, the word we use for the, that greater ambition is sacrifice, right? And if you go through your life, you can simply ask, you can ask yourself, like, what are the things that you've given yourself to? What, or, say, or use the language from Romans 12.1. What in your life have you offered yourself to? Right? You'd be like, dude, the, the Aztecs died a long time ago. Yes, but there, there are things that when, when you get involved in them, you cease to have the full autonomy that, that you had before. When, if you're in, you're in. Even if it's not sort of a formal jail sentence or something. Like, one of the first sacrifices that I can think of in my life was joining a soccer team in AYSO when I was nine. Right? It wasn't like I belonged to them, but I belonged to the team. And I, as a member of the team, I stopped thinking about me and I started thinking about the team. How can the team win? What can the team do? What should, how, do how do we win? If, the, if I scored two goals and the team lost, I felt bad. If I didn't score any goals, but the team won, I felt great. I was, I had offered myself in terms of who I was and how I acted and what I was doing to the team. Right? And as life goes on, it gets a little more intense. I remember then later on, I became a camp counselor. If you've ever worked at a summer camp, you know that it's, it's all—it's fun and games. But you don't get to sleep. There's very little privacy. It's a very intense experience where you basically lose your personal autonomy because you have, like, somebody else's eight kids for the week, right? But you're part of a team. You're part of something that's bigger. You, you give yourself to that thing. It's just the way it works, or you're not part of it. And then later on, for some of us, it was marriage, right? It, it, it was a happy sacrifice, maybe, and it may even have continued for some time to be a happy sacrifice for you. But make no mistake, it was a sacrifice. I mean, you lost a good portion of your autonomy. You gave yourself to the thing. You offered yourself to the institution, to the relationship, right? Same thing is true if you went to schooling. If you go to college, same thing. You give yourself to that thing or, you ha- or you're not going to make it. And, the same, and, and maybe one of the supremer examples is having kids. And the non-shallow life, the life that really does want to be happy in the long run anyway, but the non-shallow life is, always recognizes that there's going to be sacrifices. But none of these really match up to what, is, what Scripture talks about, what, what Jesus talks about. I mean, this, the passage in Romans 12 just flatly says— Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And there's a number of translations that translate spiritual reasonable or rational. Now, where you get those two, tran- those two translations from the same word, I am not exactly sure. 
But, so we, for, for six weeks, we've been talking about spiritual gifts. We started in chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. We went all the way through chapter 14. We've done that for five weeks. It's been a small group study. You had a little small group study guide. I mean, we had videos online. And we come to the end of it, and hopefully you know a lot more about your spiritual gifts. I hope that's true. But the, the question is, what do you, so what? I mean, what are you going to do about it? What does it, get, what does it matter I mean, is, is faith the accumulation of knowledge? Right? It's not supposed to be. Faith is supposed to have a bias for action because faith is relational. And so the, the question that, that I have to push here at the end of this is, are you going to offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice? Are you going to offer yourself because as we read on in this passage in Romans 12, that's the application, isn't it? I mean, Paul says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And if you say, okay, well, how? What's the answer three verses later? If you have this gift, use it well. Right? That's the whole point of the passage. And he says, so, okay, let's back up just a little bit and look at what— what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? I mean, sacrifices are supposed to die, right? So it's a little bit of an oxymoron. But he sa- th- this is what he says. He says, holy, pleasing. And what does it mean to be pleasing to God? In this context, it's to not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? What's the result of that? Well, if we, if we grow in holiness or godliness, we become more like Jesus. And if the result of that is that we understand what a life pleasing to God is like, that is we're, we're less conformed to lives or the lifestyle or ideology that is not pleasing to God, more that is, the, what's the result of that going to be? The result is it's going to dawn on us what God's will for our life actually is. That's going to happen. We're going to know what it would look like to do God's will and please God. And so being a living sacrifice is simply doing it. Right? If we grow in godliness, if we, if our, if our minds are transformed, we'll know what God's will is, and if we're going to be a living sacrifice, then we, we do that. We know what God's will is, and we act. We offer ourselves. We have a bias for action. We do something. We don't just accumulate knowledge. We act on that knowledge. Now, one of the next parts of that is, is when he thinks about how we should think about ourselves, because I think the Apostle Paul understands that one of the reasons why we don't act is because we think we're doing fine just the way we are. And Paul refers to this all through 1 Corinthians and here in Romans as pride. He basically says, listen, if you judge yourself by anything else, then you're not really judging yourself with sober judgment. It's kind of like high, drunk, self-evaluation. I mean, think about that. Would it, wouldn't it be hilarious, like, if you went in for something for evaluation, and they had some, like, guy who was clearly high doing your, evalu- your personal evaluation? Like, if you went to the counselor, and the guy was, like, tanked drunk, you would not be thrilled with that, right? You'd be like, dude, I want my hundred and whatever dollars back for this hour, because you're tanked, and there's no way I'm going to listen to what you're telling me, right? But that's exactly what Paul is saying when he says, listen, if you judge yourself— by any other criteria than faith. Like the measure of faith you evidently have. That is the bias for action that you have to actually act out in your life being a living sacrifice. If you judge yourself by any other criteria, it's like that. 
You need to think of yourself with sober judgment. You need to be realistic. And what's realistic look like? It doesn't look like how good you are at anything, or how accomplished you are, or how successful you are. None of that matters. The only sober judgment for a believer is to recognize that God is God, and therefore, the only thing that counts for where we are is whether or not we're a living sacrifice, whether we know the will of God and we have a bias for action for doing it. That is the measure of faith you have. And here's the thing that's a little bit annoying about God— because it's humbling towards us, is that in the same breath that he says faith is what you need to measure yourself by in terms of your responsibility, he turns around and then basically argues you can't brag about it either. Because what does he call it? Right? He says, judge yourself by the measure of faith God has given you. Right? Did you hear it? The measure of faith God has given given you. Do you see that? Isn't that frustrating? That's basically the doctrine of predestination light, right? It's basically like God has chosen to give you a certain measure of faith. That was his choice, not yours. And you should, you should judge yourself on the basis of the measure of that faith. You see, the issue is it, you, I don't know if you realize this from reading the Gospels, if you've ever done that, the, the, the books that talk about the life of Jesus. But you see, the only thing that ever amazed Jesus, where it says in the Gospels that Jesus was amazed, was when somebody either had faith or didn't have faith. People that totally should have had faith and didn't have any, he was amazed at their lack of faith, the Gospel says. And then another place where he didn't really expect this, like, pagan soldier guy comes up to him that's not a Jew, doesn't have the Bible— and, he, and his response is like, dude, I know you're God. I know, I know you have all authority. I know authority is like, just do whatever you want. And it says Jesus was amazed at his faith. Why? Because faith is the thing that we should have so much of, we have so little of. And it is amazing how little we have, and it always is amazing when we have a little bit of it. And when we look at this passage, what it demonstrates, as in all through the Bible, there's so many things that are a gift of God— but yet, we are responsible for how we use them. And how we are doing is based in whether or not we're doing anything with the thing God gave us. I mean, think back to Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents, right? There's three guys that get a whole lot of money. Did they earn that money? No. Did that money belong to them? No. Was it their amazingness that accumulated that money? Absolutely not. But did God hold them responsible for how they—did the master hold them responsible for how they used it? Absolutely. They didn't have the right to not use the gift. And ultimately, the Christian life ends up coming back down to that. There's only two tests in the Christian life, faith and faithfulness, which are essentially the same thing. Belief. And what this passage essentially argues is, listen, if you want to know who you really are, if you want to know if you really have any faith, you need to look at, look at yourself. See, is there any bias of action? What, are, what is that? Well, he says it's clear. It's love, and it's worked out in these things, whatever gift you have. Do you have a bias to do them, or do you know a bunch about it? But it doesn't matter. That's one of the reasons why the Bible can get away with saying you're saved by faith alone, nothing more than faith. Jesus died for you. That's it. That's all that can happen for you to be saved. And yet, if without holiness, real holiness in our lives, nobody will see the Lord and that we're judged by our works. I mean, how on earth can the Bible get away with saying both of those things? And it's, be, it's because 
faith is ultimately a relational word, and relationships always create actions. They always create actions. Like, I did not—I don't become a husband because I take out the trash, right? I don't become a husband because I come home at night. I don't become a husband because I work hard. I do all those things because I'm a husband, and if I didn't do those things, the legitimacy of my husbandry could be called into question. I'm sure the husbandry of many of us in this room this week was called into question. Right? What, but why? Because the relationship always produces a bias for action. I mean, think about what is one of the greatest compliments that you can give somebody that you care about if somebody attacks them? One of the greatest, if somebody attacks somebody you, you love, one of the greatest compliments you can give that, the person that you love is this. I have faith in them. What does that mean? Right? It means our relationship is such that I am willing to trust them, and I am willing to act as though I trust them in every action. So if you're attacking them, I'm still not going to believe you. I'm going to believe them. I trust them. I, I have faith in them. What does it mean to have faith in God? It means to act like you trust him. It means to act like he tells the truth. It means to act like when he says something is gracious, it's really gracious. It's not mean. When he gives a command that he says is loving, you don't say he's being a jerk. It means that when he says that we're little and he's big and we should act that way, that we love humility, we don't reject it. It means that when he gives us gifts, we embrace them. It means that we have a bias for actions of trust. And that's essentially where this passage gets. He just says, when you see that, act on it. And so there's two questions that you can ask based on, well, what do you do? The first is you can say, well, so how do you find God's perfect, pleasing will? How do you become a living sacrifice? How do you offer yourself? Well, the first question you can ask is, what would the God of love have me do? If God is a God of grace and truth— what is a gracious, merciful, loving thing to do that is fully true? And then the second is, if, if that confuses you, what has God given me with which to act, right? What's in your hands? If you don't know where to go, you can say, okay, well, what's in my hands? What resources do I have? Well, you've got some spiritual gifts. What are they? And if you, if you can know what they are, even if you don't know the grand plan that God might have for your life, if there are many actions you could take in a complicated and broken world, but you don't know where to start or what to do, well, here's something. Look at what's in your hands. And look at the spiritual gifts God has really given you. Now use those as a lens to look at the world and look for opportunities to use those spiritual gifts. And that may not mean a new action for you, it may mean changing certain actions. It may be using spiritual gifts that you haven't used in a context you haven't used them. But it's to have a bias for action if there is growing faith, if there's an acknowledgement of a gift or a passion, and if there's a willingness to sacrifice. Those three things have to be present for faith to grow and be real. For there to be faith and faithfulness, you've got to have, you've got to have some growing trust. You've got to see something you can use to the end of God's purposes. And you've got to be willing to make some sacrifice. And when that happens, you get really different results. I'm, I'm going to—let me use some examples of people who don't go here because I don't want to get too touchy 
and, and or um, point attention to somebody. But in my last church, there were a bunch of people who really ministered to me in this. There was a couple, Troy and Pam, who were empty nesters, and they had never really been part of church very much. They'd gone, they believed in God, but they would probably say that their faith hadn't grown all that much. And they were in their 50s. And then their faith started to really grow. And then they got in a small group when we did this church-wide thing, and it was really helpful for them. And they realized that this was important. And so they were part of that small group for a couple of years. And then they—and then we kept talking about the importance of small group life and how it ministered to people and blah, blah, blah. And they realized that we had this really great small group with really close—there was this one point where, like, nine small groups in a row, somebody cried. Like, it was just—it was— it was just— everybody was just that open, and there was that much going on. And, and everybody's like, you know— I, the crying isn't all fantastic, but it's, it is fun that we just know each other this much and we care about each other this much. But they realized, look, there's, there were 800 other people in our church, and half of them were not in any, anything like that. And they realized they, they needed to create something. And so they went out and they started their small group. And, and the first night, there were 30 people there just because they respected them and they wanted to be in their group. And then they started one for younger married people in their 20s. And they, they gave up two nights a week and they were some of the best small group leaders that we had. It was amazing. But— he had the gift of administration, she had the gift of hospitality, and they decided they had two extra nights a week that they wanted to use to be living sacrifices to offer God. When you put their growing faith together with their real gifts, they looked at what was in their hands, and they took action and made a sacrifice, and they had impact. There was another guy named Tom who was retired. He was an engineer, and he was just one of these guys that you just— he, you know, he's just a big, chubby guy and walked around, made all kinds of funny jokes. His, one of his greatest loves besides Jesus was Dairy Queen. <laughs> and um, he, uh, he was retired, and he, he just liked helping people. That was like one of his things. He just liked doing stuff for people, and he realized that um, being handy was helpful for people, but he realized that he wasn't really that handy. So he could kind of build a few things, like he could go into a bathroom and he could put up a new shower rack thingy. Um, but that's, I mean, that's about it. Like he was hardly able to do anything. And, but it, one of the things he realized was, as he, as he was getting older, he realized that in the Council for Aging, there were all these people who were coming home from ho the hospital either on hospice, or they were very frail, or they had gotten some kind of car accident. And for whatever reason, they needed wheelchair access to their house, but they didn't have it. And so what, what he found out was there were, there were a couple hundred families a year, just in a two-county area, that had the need of a temporary um, ramp. That's it. And it occurred to him, wait a second, I can do that. I could build that. So he started a ministry called Hardly Able. Targeted at guys, got together at 7 o'clock on Saturday mornings. They would go to one or two sites. They would build a temporary wheelchair ramp, and they would go home. And over several years, they built more than a thousand wheelchair ramps for people on hospice, for elderly people or people in terrible accidents. Many of these people weren't Christians. Many times they got to share the gospel with them. Some of the people came to church. There were men that came up to me and our senior pastor and said, said, I've been a Christian for years. I've never found a way to serve Jesus. I just didn't—it seemed like there was nothing I could do and this has given me something I can do with my bare hands to serve Jesus and to serve other people. Right? This was just a guy with a growing faith, a passion to help people even though he was hardly able to do it, and a willingness to sacrifice his Saturday mornings. And he helped thousands of people. 
There's another guy in our church that was given about three months to live. He, he had cancer. He went to the, went to the um, hospital in Panama City, and they said that in about three to four months, he'd be dead for sure, so you better make a will. He went to MD Anderson in Texas, which is the cancer center, and even though they had to cut out parts of his body and just really do a number on him, he's still alive right now. Um, but he's one of the, and he could, he could, they had to do a number of um, operations on his vocal cords, so he talks in kind of a whisper. But he had two passions, fishing and encouraging kids. And so he was the guy who would take all the foster kids out trolling for mackerel, right, a couple times a year. But he was always constantly just encouraging, encouraging, doing all kinds of stuff, just to encourage, encourage, encourage. And one of the places he would, he would look to encourage was in our youth group. And he was in our, a small group with a family who had a son in the youth group named Dakota. And his mom came down with cancer. And we just, it was just, a, it was just one of those deals where it just, it took a year. It just destroyed her and ultimately took her life. And I watched this guy encourage, 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 encourage this young man. When he was about 14 when it happened. And 14-year-old guy your mom died of cancer like that, that can really, that can really send you into a decade tailspin, especially in your faith. How can God let that happen? But when Lex and I went to visit this summer, Dakota's a leader in that youth group. He's, he's stronger. He looks like a man now. He loves Jesus. He's engaged. And he's encouraging other young guys coming through that youth ministry with the gifts that he has that are in music and lights and sound, sports. And you see how, see how these things beget each other? One, one person uses their gift and somebody else is strengthened and they use their gift and somebody else is strengthened and they use their gift and somebody else is strengthened and they use their gift. Let me tell you just one more. Can I tell you one more? I don't tell a lot of stories, so I just try to do it all at once when I do it. So I had a really good friend. I'm not going to say his name because of the story that you'll hear, but he, um, <clears throat> he was a high-level public official, and um, through a series of, of legal injustices, um, he was stamped with a legal stamp that he did not earn, such that he was an outcast. And, um, but yet, <clears throat> he had a growing faith. He was a handyman. He loved to fix stuff. He had an engineer's mind. And he had a real love for military families. Real love for mili military families, particularly people who'd seen service. But he wasn't, because of his social outcast stamp, he couldn't do anything for kids, he couldn't do anything around women. And so he realized that um, we had this bell that we had had since like 1910 or something like that. Lynn Haven was 100 years old. And it just was sitting somewhere, rusting. It was this big cast iron bell, about this big around. And he found out that there were some rednecks in Texas who were motorcycle guys who were going to military funerals with this bell. And at certain times during the military funeral, they would just ring it. Boom. And these guys were talking about it, and he, and he said, it, it, he's like just doing, just having this like tolling bell emotionally for the families, it takes the whole thing up like 12 notches. Because one of the problems with funerals is how do you make them not just sort of like silly hokey. How do, you, how do you make them feel like they have the gravity they relationally have for the people who are mourning? It's really hard to do. 
And so he, so he kind of put two two together. He's like, I bet I could create a trailer that I could hook to my motorcycle that had this bell on it, and we could do this. So he took some boat trailer out of a garbage dump. He put wheels on it. He welded the thing so it could work. He asked for the bell. We gave it to him. He put it on this thing. He drives all over the panhandle of Florida and southern Alabama with these, with these other mostly non-Christian redneck biker guys. They have made him their chaplain. And he rides around to military funerals, and he does the bell tolling protocol. He cares for the family, and he preaches the gospel at bikers. Now, most people would have just given up. If God let your good reputation and your good name be destroyed, most people would throw in the towel, even more than suffering. Cancer will do it, but getting branded, getting your good name destroyed, that'll do it even worse. Very few people are humble enough to take that. But that's what he did. And that may not sound like a big deal, but I'll tell you what, I have seen some of the families that he went to their funerals, tears streaming down their face, saying that that was the—just th- hearing that and the sense of finality, the sense of, of the, 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 that sound kind of going through them, they were like, thank you so much for coming. And I've seen that, and, he's, and it's amazing to see what he's accomplished. And another buddy that I led to faith who likes riding motorcycles got together with now it's the two of them preaching the gospel at bikers, and it's just fun to watch it happen. And it's something I could never do. Those guys would never listen to me. I could never have built that thing. I wouldn't have done anything with that bell. I would have never built any wheelchair ramps. I wouldn't have paid any attention to that 14-year-old. I wouldn't have done any of that. But all of it happened because those people had a growing faith, because they had a gift in their hands, they were willing to use it, and they were willing to make some kind of sacrifice to see it done. They had a, their faith had a bias for action. They were willing to make themselves an offering. But you can ask this question. Why is this so important to God? Why is it in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians and in Romans and again and again and again? Why is—why does it matter so much? Because it seems to really matter to God. It doesn't seem to be something like that we can do it if we want to, and if we don't want to, that's okay. It seems to be mandatory. It seems to be built into the very fabric of what real faith is. And I think one of the things that we need to recognize is that it's because, and this is what I'm going to want to argue out of Ephesians 4, is that God has a very specific, very important purpose in giving them. God does not just give us the gift of spiritual gifts, nor the gift of faith, as a, as a mere recreational end in itself. You see, there's some gifts that we give, like a plastic pumpkin, for example, that have no end other than simply the gift. I mean, that's not the—you know, you guys didn't give me a plastic pumpkin such that I would do something special with it, right? It's a joke. It's a gift. It's just supposed to make me feel special. That's all there is to it, right? But there are some gifts that that's not true of. In fact, most gifts. And that includes your spiritual gifts. They're not— they're not given to us to be disposed of as we choose. So often we think that our time and our money and our self and our whatever, our belongings, are, they're ours and they're to be disposed of as we choose. But God disagrees with that. He's always disagreed with that. The Bible does say God, in 1 Thessalonians, God has given us these things to be used for our enjoyment. It's not like God doesn't want us to enjoy anything. It's not like leisure is bad. 
But it's, but it's to say that when you use something for your leisure, it is because God gave it to you for the purpose of your enjoyment. You have not stepped out of the purposes of God. If you rightly embrace fun and play and leisure, it, it should be within the will of God. That should be his purpose for us in that time. And then to recognize that everything he's given is for more purposes than just that. <clears throat> so think, think about it this way. So my kids are nine, seven, and five. You know how sometimes when you go over to somebody's house, you, you're bringing something? What can I bring, right? You know, come on, well, what can I bring, right? And so they, you know, they say, oh, you can bring the dessert or something, which just means you don't need to bring anything, but since you're annoying us, you can bring the dessert, right? So, or flowers or something, you know? And so, so you make this dessert in this like little bowl thing, right? And so our family marches out to the car and Lexi, you know, if, if I'm going to drive, Lexi will be holding the dessert, right? And so every once in a while, a kid will pipe up and say, I'll hold it. Can I hold it? Right? So you can imagine Jude in his car seat. Mommy, can I hold the dessert? Well, what's the answer to that question? You know, it's no. No. Because this isn't an extra. Right? This isn't an extra. We need this. Like, this has to, when we get to where we're going, this pudding needs to be still in the bowl. Because when you mix it with the gravel that's on the floor, it just doesn't, it's not as smooth. And so, you know, so when you, rec you know, and so you, you got to figure whether or not the kid has enough, you know, enough wherewithal to hold the thing and it get there in one piece because it's not an extra. And see, one of the things that you and I need to realize is, is that I really think that sometimes we, we feel like our spiritual gifts, our abilities, our resources, our time, our whatever— in the grand scheme of, of things with God, it really, they, it really is extras. This is surplus. If this doesn't get put back into the system, nobody's really going to notice. If this isn't necessary, there's so many people, there's so much stuff going on. God has so much power. He can save whoever he wants. What I have is, is for me to dispose of as I choose. It's, it's essentially believing that you're the seven-year-old, and it, it really doesn't matter if you spill the pudding. Hold it however you want. When, in fact, it's, it's not an extra. That thing that you hold in your hands, that gift that you have, it's not an extra. It's, it's needed. This church needs it to fulfill the purposes God has for us. Your family needs it. Everybody in your circle of influence need it. We, they need it. The world needs us to band together into a movement that is woven together and stronger because we're together to affect things, and it's, it's needed. And, and when we don't, act like we know that. Well, wherever we go doesn't have dessert. Except we're bringing the main course, guys. If you want to look at that passage in Ephesians, the first couple of verses talk about people with the gifts, gifts to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And that's basically a list, a list of what you might call leadership gifts. And the whole purpose is for them to ignite everybody else's gifts. The reason why that list is just those things is because in the church at that time, people with those gifts tended to be itinerant. Do you know what that means? going from place to place to place to place. They generally didn't settle down. And so a lot of the people who had, who had prophetic ministries, apostolic ministries, evangelistic ministries, and like teaching ministries, oftentimes they would move between the churches. Think Apollos, think Timothy, think Paul, think Silas. 
right? These are guys that were traveling around. Paul would send them places, they'd strengthen, then they'd go somewhere else. And then locally, you'd have elders that would oversee the church. So why do you need these itinerant guys? Why does the Holy Spirit create these people that are constantly moving between churches? Well, so that each of the churches they go to would be strengthened and able to use their spiritual gifts, right? Well, it says, so that—oh, I have—it's so up there. Great. So that— to prepare God's people, why do they do, why do they have this? Teachers and teachers, verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Do you remember that from last week? You remember chapter 14? There was that constant edify, 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 which means build up. Do you see how this language comes back again when he's talking about how the gospel is used in the church to strengthen people to know him? He come, always comes back to the same language of building and knitting and tying together and strengthening, Right? Until we reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Right? That's the purpose. The purpose is not so we'll have enough volunteers in children's ministry. It's not so that we'll have enough people working with the homeless so that we'll get on the news. It's not so that we'll have enough voters. So if we choose we want to have somebody as like a representative or mayor or governor or something, we can get who we want. It's none of that stuff. The outcomes are spiritual. It is that the body of Christ would be mature that all, and as a, individually, but there's also such a thing as a mature church. A, a, a community of people that are together mature. And do you see what, do you see the result? The result is the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, that's not very interesting if Jesus is not very interesting to you. If you think of Jesus as somebody you have to give some lip service to or, you know, it's kind of, okay, so I go to church and whatever, that's one thing. But if, if you recognize that Jesus is the most interesting being that has ever existed, will ever exist, that all truth, all beauty, all goodness, all wisdom, all humility, I mean, everything that you long for in the deepest longing, even the longings that you've shut down because you have no hope left, they'll ever be fulfilled. If you know that he is the fulfillment of them. Then the idea that if we would be built up in the use of our spiritual gifts to real maturity, that we would in some way experience something that could be legitimately called the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Well, then, then that would be really inspiring, wouldn't it? And it would be really motivating But in the next verses, he also talks about the negative, too, because it's not just what we stand to gain. It's also what we—there's also what we stand to lose, right? He says, then, not only will we be mature, but guess what, hap guess what happens when you're mature? You're not a baby anymore either, right? He says, he says, then we'll no longer be if it's tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, right? We'll be grown up. And I don't know about you, but um, if you've ever spent any time at sea, those are very— very powerful metaphors. If you don't think those are powerful metaphors, you probably haven't spent any time at sea, okay? Because I'll just tell you what. If you've been at sea, you know there is just about nothing worse than being seasick. You talk about a condition that you can recover from in about 20 minutes, but you would invite somebody to shoot you in the head. It's seasickness. It's awful. I've been seasick so many times, God has been preparing me for this moment to explain this to you <laughs> through all my spear fishing and fishing. 
but I, I am not very good at sea, but I love to fish. And so I will go. And I, I'll just tell you what, man. It is just, it is just a terrible, like your head, your body, your guts, everything shuts down. You're throwing up your innards. You're, you want to jump overboard into the water and drown yourself. Your head pounds and pounds and pounds, and there's no letting up, and you can't make it stop. It is, it is, the, it is so, such a horrible feeling. And if you've ever been at sea, if you've ever been sailing and lost your sail or broken your mast— I remember when I was a kid, I was sailing with this girl out in this, this lake in New York, and I thought I was this cool sailor because I was a camp counselor, and you take sailors, you take kids sailing in little sunfishes all the time. So we're sailing in this, old, this older boat that was at this camp when her parents were renovating it. And so we're sailing across this lake, and this gust comes, and I'm like, oh, this will be great. I'll harness this wind, and we'll start cruising, right? So I pull back on the sail, and the boat kind of comes up, and it's like what sailing is supposed to be. And then the mast just snapped. Just— And the feeling of helplessness when you lose your mast or your sail, you got nothing. You're not going anywhere. You're going to go wherever the wind blows you or wherever the waves push you. And that's all there is to it. You are totally lost. You have no, there's, you have no hope. There's, there's nothing to be done. And you see, bo- you see both of those, seasickness and being tossed by the waves, are both propulsion problems. Because if you're at sea and you're getting beat up, the best thing to do is to turn your engine on and start going somewhere. Because then you'll go up and down, but you won't go back and forth. And you can ride it. You mean six-foot seas, but if you're going somewhere, most people can handle that. But if you stop in six-foot seas, almost nobody can handle that. You just get beat up and get sick. Same thing with a sail. As long as you're sailing and you're moving somewhere, if your mast isn't broken, you can still make it. Right? If you're in a storm, what's, what, what sailors do the first thing in a storm? Get the sails down, get them tied up, because we're going to need masts and we're going to need sails when this is over. We can take on water, we can get beat up, we can get seasick, all that stuff can happen. But if when the storm ends, we still have a mast and a sail, we can get somewhere. And you see, that's the problem is, is that when our faith doesn't have a bias for action, if we're people that want to serve Jesus and follow him in a way where we're not willing to make ourselves living sacrifices— if our faith doesn't have a bias for action, if, being, if having faith and being faithful aren't at the heart of what we are, if we're trying to get something out of our faith other than growing faith in Jesus, then we are going to have propulsion problems. Being an infant has a huge cost. Being immature spiritually has an enormous cost. You're like somebody just getting beaten up at sea throwing up your insides. It's never going to stop. You've got no propulsion to get anywhere. The sinful world, your life, and everything around you is just going to beat you to death. And what he's saying is, is he's saying, he's saying, listen, if we will let those God has given spiritual leadership gifts to, if we will let those leaders come and stir all of us up so that we'll be equipped as a church for works of service, then the result of that is we'll become mature We'll be strengthened. We will attain to, in some sense, the, the, the measure of the fullness of Christ. There will be a godliness formed in us, individually and together, that is profound. And all of the liabilities of spiritual and moral infancy will start to go away. And he comes to this last, kind of this last place, where he says, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, 
For him, who is the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I want you to see those, those three parts, okay? Those are the three parts that are really important. And that's how we're going to end today, okay? Because if, I believe that if we say, well, you've got to ask yourself if you're going to be a living sacrifice, that real faith always has a bias for action. If that's true, then it, it makes sense to me that we would do some smaller action to point to the larger action. I think sometimes you've got to make your body do stuff to convince your soul of it. Um, most of you recognize this is our communion table, right? It says, do this in remembrance of me at the top. It has a cross on it. But part of what it represents is it, this is the only thing left in the church that's an altar. This is the thing on which the sacrifice is placed. That is our remembrance of Christ's great sacrifice. This is the only, this is the closest thing we have to an altar. And the thing is, God, God doesn't want us to make sacrifices to our idols, he wants us to sacrifice ourselves as living sacrifices to the one greater sacrifice, Jesus. And the result of that, if you remember the stuff we looked at, is unity. It's, it's, a, it's a product. It's—do you, you see how it says— Well, that's not the right screen. This, see, this is why we need to get vertical shades. <laughs> I can see it great on the back. It says in verse 16, For him the whole body joined and held together with every supporting ligament— grows and builds itself up in love. Why say every supporting ligament? You see, because he's using the body metaphor again, but he wants us to see that there's something in the body that makes it tied together. Right? The ligaments, the sinews, there's parts of the body that their function, the reality is how we're all tied together. Do you remember months ago, some of you, when we started out in 1 Corinthians 1? And Paul said one of the reasons why we had to put away pride in our factionalism was so that we could become one, so that we could be knitted together. We could be tied together, joined together, so that there would be unity. And remember, we had people, we had people knitting up there, and they ended up with this, right? A, a tied together, a joined together thing. That this is what the church is meant to be. Built on, right? Built on the one great sacrifice of Jesus. But how does the verse end, right? The verse doesn't say that this just happens. It says that the church is held together by every supporting ligament, and it grows and builds—what's that next word? It builds itself up. Now think about how—that's not very theological. That's kind of man-centered, isn't it? The church—God builds up the church, right? Why does he say it builds the church, right? The body of Christ builds itself up. Why? Because it's going to say right after that, in love, as each part does its work. Do you see how all of this that he says, every bit, the maturity, the loss of infancy, the propulsion forward rather than being lost in waves and lost in wind, that all of that, it all comes down to one thing— it all comes down to faith having a bias for action. It comes down to whether or not you and I will make ourselves living sacrifices, whether or not you'll offer yourself. It all comes down to that. The strength of the church, who we are, whether we'll reach the world, what's going to happen, whether Jesus is going to be glorified, whether his name will be seen as great, whether we enjoy Christian community, whether there will really be unity. All of that comes down to one thing, whether or not faith will be faith. And that's why you have— this in your bulletin this morning. 
take it out. There's a card either in your bulletin or on the pew right next to you. There's in the, it's in the pew, it should be in the pew also. This says spiritual gift offering. On the front of the card, it has a statement. By the strength and guidance of the Holy Spirit, I want to offer myself to God by seeing that people are edified and lifted up through the use of my spiritual gifts. I will use the gifts God has given me to— There's a colon. On the back are different spiritual gifts that you may have found in your, the spiritual gift survey, or, or you may just know what you have. And there's a statement that goes along with them. The worship band is going to come up, and here's what I want you to do. And listen, you don't have to do this. This is an offering. Just like you didn't have to give money before, you don't have to do this now. It's voluntary. It's voluntary. While they play, here's what, here's what I'd like you to do. One, decide whether or not you want to be an offering. Do, do you want to offer yourself? Do you want to be a living sacrifice? If you do, then, ma- then Matt, just go back, look at your spiritual gift, and in what way are you going to see to it? That the body is tied together? In what way are you going to be part of building the unity and the maturity that these gifts were given for? In what way are you going to try to make us great so that God can be seen as great? And I want you to write it right here. And then I want you to come up and put it on the altar on the blanket. I want you to come up as a recognition that this is because of Christ's greater sacrifice— because I want to be part of his vision for knitting together a people for himself that he cares about from all the nations of the world. And I recognize that that's partly dependent on what he's called me to do. Me choosing to be a living sacrifice by using these gifts. And you just put it here. Let's pray while they start to play. Father, I pray that you'd use a few minutes now to take this message. I know it wasn't really that— Stirring, probably, um, but I pray that everybody here who has ears to hear would see that there's truth to it, that it's plainly what these passages of your word say, that it's the true calling of all who would come to believe, and that it's what, Jesus, you want from us. And we recognize that it's out of love you've called us to this, and that this is what faith is. So give us the right bias for action, Father, and help us to be ready And help this action not to be a a church ritual, Father, but help this to be a smaller action that precedes the larger action of this life. I pray that this six weeks wouldn't be in vain, that it would be only knowledge, but that the knowledge we've learned would inform our faith and that faith would now come forth as people giving themselves as an offering. In Jesus' name, amen.